You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. In this message series, we're taking a, a deeper look at this amazing gift of life that we've all been given. And there are three premises that are at the foundation of everything we're going to be saying in these, these weeks. So let me just review these very quickly. Premise number one is God is the giver of life. What that means is, as the giver, if we're confused about this gift or any aspect of this gift, he is the one that we look to and ask questions about the nature of this gift. Premise number two is God's words not only started life, but they now sustain our life. Every living thing is dependent on some kind of resources to stay alive, and therefore they're dependent on a habitat where those resources are. Now, for us as humans, we are dependent on resources, physical resources, food, water, air. We, we have a habitat that we are dependent on. But we are, in addition to that, uniquely made by God to be dependent on his words. And so his words form really the boundaries of the habitat in which human life flourishes. So not only are we dependent on physical things, we're also dependent on his words. That's premise number two. Premise number three is life is a partnering gift. In other words, we don't stand off to the side and um, watch new life just appear. We are given the opportunity to be co-creators with God in the arrival of new life. And so we're considering the ways in which God invites us particularly to partner with him in this great gift of new life. Today, we turn our attention to the two genders that are required for co-creation to take place. They are obviously male and female. Now, my daughter is our oldest, and so when she was born, the first words I heard were, it's a girl. Now, with the expanse of ultrasounds, uh, those words are often heard long before the moment of birth. But no matter when you find out about the gender of your child, as a parent, it's always big news. It's really the moment when you kind of unwrap the gift and you learn what it is that God decided to give you, a boy or a girl. But now... We're all aware of this. There's a lot of questions that are surrounding the nature of this gift. And there are more and more people who are deciding to return this gift and exchange it for the other gift or really not want either gift at all. And so we're going to look at this this morning. Now, like other life forms, obviously, God made us male and female. And what this means at a biology level is that new life is impossible without genetic material from both the male and the female. Now, with the advances of medicine, we can get around the act of sex to fertilize new life in a test tube, but we cannot get around the male and female requirement. Now, the question is, why would we be wanting to get around this male and female requirement? The reason is because an increasing number of people are reporting strong and persistent feelings of confusion about their gender. Now, the Bible presents an answer to these feelings, and our culture, the the modern culture, also presents a very different answer to these feelings. And before we look more deeply into these answers, I just want to be really clear about one thing. We are talking this morning about real people with real struggles with these issues. This is not just some debate that's taking place on social media. This is a debate that's taking place in the minds and the hearts of real people 
who are feeling real emotions and who are genuinely confused. So this is not just an important issue in our culture. It's kind of the, the dominant issue in our culture right now. But it's much more than that. This is about important people in our culture who are loved by God, who are created by God, who are made in his image, and should be loved by us. This is why we have got to get the answer on this confusion right. Like with anything, diagnosis is the key to treatment. If we get the diagnosis wrong, the treatment will not be helpful, it will be harmful. But we've got to get the answer right. So this morning I'm going to present the answer found in Scripture, in the Bible. It's very different than the answer that you find right now. But these, this confusion, these feelings, this is not just a modern phenomenon. The Bible addresses this matter. Now, the modern attempts, first of all, uh, try to solve this confusion, these emotions, by separating sex from gender. So let me throw some definitions up here so we're really clear on, on what uh, we're talking about. This is the definition of sex. Sex is the biological categories of female and or male, female or male. This is assigned at birth. Gender refers to the socially constructed behaviors and identities of girls, women, boys, and men. Now, for all of history, these two were seen as being connected, as really one in the same. In other words, a male human was a boy who would grow up to be a man, and a female was a girl who would grow up to be a, a woman. That's been the basic understanding across all cultures and all time until more recently. That is no longer the popular thinking in our culture. Now we think of those things, our culture does, as separate, not one and the same, not connected. And that's uh, brought a, a series of new terms. Um, so I want to get our dictionary up to date here so we understand what we're talking about. You may hear these terms a lot, and you may never have looked them up to see exactly what they mean. So I want to give you the definition so we're very clear on what we're talking about. First term that we hear uh, a lot of is gender dysphoria. This is what gender dysphoria is. It's one's emotional identity is opposite to their biological sex. That's the definition of gender dysphoria. Non-binary is another term we hear a lot. That means to identify as neither male nor female. Transgender, we're probably a little more familiar with that, is someone who is in transition from one gender to another. There's more terms, but these are kind of the, the basic categories. Sex, gender, gender dysphoria, non-binary, transgender. Now, in 2018, our state passed uh, a bill called the Gender Recognition Act. You can see uh, the number of the bill up there. You, I would encourage you, if you're wondering about this, to look up and see what it says. What this bill does is it adds a third category onto the birth certificates and driver's license issued by the state of California. And that category is non-binary. So you have male, female, and now you can select non-binary. Section 1 of this bill, passed in 2018, says this. It says more than this, but this is an expert, uh, excerpt out of it. You can check it if you'd like. It simply says this, gender identification is fundamentally personal. So that's kind of the, the idea right now, is that gender identification is fundamentally personal. And the question we're going to be looking at today is whether that is actually the case or not. In Genesis 1 through 3, we find a description not only of the origin of life, and particularly of human life, we also find 
a tremendous amount of information about our gender, what God intends behind our gender. So we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, particularly as it relates to gender. Three ideas related uh, to these first three chapters that we're going to deal with this morning. The first idea is this. All of us are anchored. In Genesis 1, we, we get a very clear picture of uh, some very important things about us that anchor our souls and who we are at the core. So the first statement that's made about us as humans is found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Here's what it says. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What this is saying is that down deep at the core of who we are as people are two fundamental anchored ideas, realities, not just ideas, but realities about who we are. The first is we are made in the image of God. Now, much can be said about the implications of what it means to be made in the image of God. I've spoken on this in other times, but let me just summarize it this way. We need God. We are made in his image. We don't do well over time apart from God. Because an image, uh, think of it like a shadow. A shadow is an image of the object. So uh, if we only had one light, you could more clearly see my shadow. But we've got all these lights, so there's lots of shadows. But my shadow is an outline. It's an image of the outline of me. We belong together. Me and my shadow go everywhere together. If you ever see my shadow walking around without me, Check the medication you're on, because shadows and people <laughs> go together. So in a similar way, we can't really escape the reality of our need for God. It is the first and most important reality, in fact, about us. Because without God, <clears throat> we will spend our lives looking for something big enough for our God-shaped shadow to stand next to. But we can't find anything to replace God. It's kind of like trying to hide behind a blade of grass. The, grass. the blade of grass is too small to hide behind to fit the shadow of our image on the inside. Nothing on earth is big enough for us to find ourselves in the shadow of. Only God. We are created in his image. So that's the core deepest reality about who we are. We are made in the image of God. The next reality said in this verse, so it says he created us in his image and then he created us male and female. So that down deep, the next deep thing about us is our gender. Male and female, he created them. We are either male or female. What this says is we are in fact binary, two kinds. Now, this is not just a biological requirement for the procreation of the species. This is a personal reality given to us and is actually hardwired into our souls. What this means, again, there's a lot that can be said about this, and we're going to be talking about this a little bit more this morning, but if I just were to summarize it in one statement, it would be the fact that we need each other. We are made in the image of God, which means we need him. We are made male and female, which means we need each other. 
We need both men and women who are clear about what that means and are doing their part to reflect who God is, God's image. Gender is really a two-part, a binary reflection of the God who made us. No one person, no one gender can reflect God's image. We, we need them both. So those are the, the two core realities about who we are. We can disagree with this. We can have other ideas, but it doesn't, doesn't change the fundamental nature of the shape of our soul. Now, floating on the surface of these two realities is us, the individual. We'll represent it as a boat. We're sitting here in this boat. This is us. Now, we are not just men and women. We are particular men or particular women. So what that means is a lot of things. We all can have different personalities. Um, some of us are outgoing. Some of us are not so outgoing. You know, there's all different kinds of, of ways you can identify personality types. And those range across the gender spectrum, male and female, all different kinds of personalities. We're raised in different environments. You know, depending on your family, depending on how you grew up, that really impacts a lot about who you are. And we all grow up to have different preferences. Some of those preferences are seen immediate. Some of them are seen later. If you if you are a parent of many children, you are aware of the fact that, boy, they're, they're really different. Same family, same approach, very different children. So this boat drifts depending on personalities, depending on environment, depending on preferences, but that doesn't change the fact that it's anchored to these two realities. We are anchored to the fact that we're made in the image of God and the fact that we're either male or female. We're anchored to our gender and to God. Now, when my son was, was little, he spent, I think it was about a year, maybe more, uh, asking me gender questions. They weren't deep questions. They were questions that little kids ask. For example, I'd, I'd be washing the car, and he'd see me wash the car regularly, and he'd never seen his mother wash the car. And so he'd say, so, Dad, only boys wash cars, Right? Maybe he saw another guy wash the car down the street or something. So he came to the conclusion, this is what boys do. We wash cars. Or I'd be barbecuing. And again, I do most of the barbecuing. My wife does some, but I do most of it. And so he would say, so, so Dad, only boys barbecue, right? And this went on for a whole year. Whatever I was doing, you know, from time to time he'd say, so this is what boys do, right? And girls don't do this, Right? And so we'd have conversations about what boys and girls can do. Now, I would explain to him that, no, um, girls can wash cars and girls can barbecue. Girls can do a lot of different kinds of things. What he was doing is he was stereotyping the genders. You, heard this, you hear this phrase a lot, but that's what he was doing. What does it mean to stereotype? The word stereo, you know, two channels. Remember the old days when all you had was a stereo and that was amazing? <laughs> two channels. Two or more channels, stereo. Type means the category. Um, my son was trying to figure out what category he was in and what that meant. That's what kids do. They, they learn categories like shapes and colors and people, and I mean, that's just part of education is you learn the categories of life. And that's what he was doing. He was trying to figure out the categories of reality. 
The problem with stereotyping is you're only using two data points, stereo, maybe just a few more. But reality is much more complex than two data points can explain. So just because I barbecue and another man barbecues, it's not accurate to say that men are the only ones supposed to be doing the barbecuing. That's not an accurate categorization. That's not an accurate type. And so for the past, I would, you know, it's about 60 years or so, um, the goal has been, and this, this was with the rise of the first, what they call first wave feminism, well, actually second wave feminism, which was basically trying to break the stereotypes to say women can do a lot of things. They don't have to just do this. And so that was actually, a lot of the last 60 years has been to remove the stereotypes of what men and primarily what women can and cannot do. And for the most part, that's been a very good thing. That's been really helpful. But one of the challenges is right now, we're moving so far down this path that we're no longer addressing stereotyping. We are now eliminating the type. We're in the name of, we don't want stereotype, we're, now there's no type. We're having a hard time figuring out what is a man and what is a woman. The type is now gone because we've done so much work on eliminating stereotypes. So we understand about the range at which an individual boat can float, but we're now trying to cut from the anchor and from gender altogether. That's what's going on in our culture right now. The problem is gender is not just one of our many traits. It's one of the, the two most important realities about us. We are made in the image of God, and we are made male and female. It's the first thing that's said about us. Now, the next two chapters in Genesis go on to give us deeper insight into our genders. And we get two additional lessons out of that. So point number two is this. None of us are autonomous. We are not autonomous. The Oxford Dictionary defines autonomous this way. It's just simply moral independence. And it comes from just the word itself. It's, it's a two-part word, two Greek words together. Auto is Greek for self. Nomos is Greek for law. So when you're autonomous, what that's saying is that you are your own law, really self-law. No, no law is over you. No one is over you. You are autonomous. You are sovereign. You, you are your own law. You are self-law. That's what it means to be autonomous. So... This is what we read in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 18. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So this is the scene in which Eve is created and we have male and then now female. Now, at first, when you read this, you should notice there are two forces at work in the beginning of these verses. The first force is our freedom. In this case, the freedom of Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman. It says, God says, you are free. You're free to wander all around this garden and eat from any tree. So that's the first force we see is the force of our freedom. But it comes up against the force of God's law. That's the second force. It goes on to say, but you must not eat 
This is God saying this is a law here. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat it, you will surely die. What's, what's the point being made here? The point is this. We are free, like Adam and Eve, to do whatever we want. But if we ignore God's laws, there are consequences. We cannot thrive. Our life begins to die. Now, some of God's laws are visible like the laws of nature. You know, for example, we are free to jump off a 10-story building. We have that freedom. But we cannot do that and live. Why? There's this pesky little law called the law of gravity. And we cannot self-law and get rid of that law. So it turns out we can't self-law and defy the laws of nature. And it's the same with God's moral laws. The difference is we defy the laws of nature and the consequences are instant. We defy God's laws and we begin to wither on the inside and we begin to die in more painful, emotional, and time-based ways. But it's still the same. So a good way to say this is we are free, but we're not independent. We are free, but we're not independent. To remind us of this reality... Because like Adam and Eve, if you know how the story goes on, they decided to self-law, to eat of that forbidden tree. And all of their descendants have decided to self-law too. But to remind us that we cannot rule ourselves, we cannot be our law unto ourselves, God gave us two genders. And because there's two genders, we need the opposite sex to come up with new life. We cannot self-law a baby into existence. Now, both of these, in both of these verses, um, they occur after God has said, it is good seven times. You can read it in Genesis chapter 1. Seven different times God paused in the creation story and said, it is good. But now for the first time in the creation story, God says, it is not good. Seven, it is good. One, it is not good. Did God forget something? Did, you know, he's going through his checklist, and he oh, forgot something. Eve, I knew there was something I forgot to make. Is that what's going on here? No? This is a dramatic pause, a it-is-not-good moment to make sure that we're not just going through the motions, reading, but we pause and lean in on what's going on here. We don't miss this point. What's not good? It's not good to be alone. Why not? Well, because there are all kinds of things that Adam can't do alone. The most obvious thing, of course, is make a baby. But that's just the most obvious and the beginning of the not-good-to-be-alone list. The good things in this world, I mean, as we just look around, the good things that we use and rely on over and over again were not done by one person. People had to come together to create it, to build it, to maintain it. I mean, your car didn't, it's, one person didn't do that. Your phone, one person didn't do that. This room, one person didn't do this. I mean, we, we are not autonomous. 
And the very moment that you start working with others to accomplish anything, self-law becomes a problem. Because if everyone is self-lawing, then no one can work together. If everyone wants to do what they want to do and there are no laws, you have anarchy, not peace and and productivity. What self-law does, what autonomy does, is it isolates and separates people. Now, you can self-law for a while if you have a lot of money and you pay pay people to do what you want them to do. People will cease to be autonomous for a paycheck. But... There's a lot of areas in life where you can't even pay people to follow you. There's always one thing that will burst your autonomous bubble, and that is having children. You just can't do that alone. You need the opposite sex. Or at a minimum, you need the genetic material of the opposite sex. And to get that, there's laws about that. So you're going to encounter a law there. And if you want to put a family together for that child to grow up in, you can forget self-lawing. I mean, how does marriage and self-lawing work? They don't. Autonomy leads to fights and breakups, not stable marriages and families. How does having kids and autonomy fit together? (laughs) They don't. If you have kids, forget your big idea about being autonomous. You have ceased to be autonomous. The needs of that child become like a new law to you. And it's not a law that's passed and you have to decide whether you're going to do something. It's a law that screams in the middle of the night. And you find yourself rising out of bed as if summoned by a king or a queen. I thought you were autonomous. Not if you have kids. No more self-lawing. And if you don't listen to the needs of your child, the volume's only going to go up. So gender really is God's homing beacon, calling us away from autonomy and back into real relationships with him and with each other. But let's be honest. The idea of autonomy is appealing, isn't it? Self-law? I mean, if you're autonomous, you don't have to listen to anyone. You do whatever you want. You can be whoever you want. All without any of the limitations that are there if you're just a part of a marriage or a part of a family or a part of a business. You can do whatever you want. So autonomy has become the modern answer to gender dysphoria. You solve it by ignoring the biology, and you go off on your own trying to figure out and define and redefine and create what it is you want to be. You come up with the laws in the area of gender. So when Miley Cyrus called herself a genderless soul and announced that she was pansexual, she was declaring her autonomy. That's what she was really doing. No one, not even God, could tell her who she was. Now, Miley's rich, so she can pull that off for a little while. And actually, gender autonomy is only recently possible. This isn't even a discussion in Africa where there's hardly any money or any medical science. 
It's only recently possible. Medical science and affluence have made it possible for us to be more autonomous than ever before in human history. In the past, if you wanted kids, you had to have sex with a member of the opposite sex. That's how you had kids. That's, all you, that's the only way. Not now. There are other ways to do that. And in the past, if you wanted sex, you had to at least face the real risk of becoming a parent, of having a child that would destroy your autonomy. <laughs> that's expensive. That messes with your autonomy more than anything else. But now, that's no longer really a risk. Childish sex is expected. Now we have birth control. I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm just saying that that's an advance that takes the risk out of having sex. And we're even willing to kill the unborn to protect our autonomy. But the deep reality of gender is more powerful than any declaration of our autonomy. And there's two points of time in a life where you just can't get away from gender. At the beginning, new life, and at the end, old and dying life. We often leave this earth facing the final reminder that we are not autonomous. We get old, and guess what? We need help. We need to be cared for. But who cares enough about us to help us in our old age? Oh, I've got insurance. I've got Medicare. Medicare doesn't care about you. Who cares about you? Your children do. The offspring of your maleness and femaleness, the great destroyers of your autonomy. In the end, are the great providers of your care. We have a couple of neighbors right now that, are, that we know pretty well that are aging, and they have no children. I don't, I don't know why they have no children. Maybe they tried and couldn't. Maybe it was a choice. I, I really don't know. But what I do know is watching them face the challenges of old age without family, I have never been so grateful I have kids in my life. I mean, they have insurance. They have a lot of money because they had no kids. <laughs> That's the other thing kids do. <laughs> and they have Medicare. But the government or a rehab facility does not care about them like a son would or a daughter does. My wife is in Little Rock, Arkansas, right now, because of a medical crisis for her mother, who drops everything and flies across the country. The government can do that. Kids will do that. So, you know, in my old age, my preference is to be autonomous, but boy, that doesn't look, unless I go out early and quick which is not so bad. <laughs> I am going to need care. I'm going to need someone 
to be my advocate when my mind may not be able to be. And so we exit with the great reminder, you're not autonomous. Self-law was never realistic. That brings us to the last point. All of us are dysphoric. We're all dysphoric. Here's a definition of dysphoric, also from the Oxford Dictionary. It is a state of unease or general dissatisfaction with life. Yep, I know that. The last verse in Genesis chapter 2 says this. This is Genesis 2:25. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. What a weird verse, right? I mean, why say that? It's because that was about to change in just a few verses. Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 7, just six verses later. Here's what we read. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she self-lawed, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. He self-lawed. Then what happened? The eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for for themselves. This is really surprising. They sinned, and the first thing that dawned on them was, hey, I'm naked. (laughs) Really? Is that what happens to you? You sin, you're like, oh, good, I've got clothes on. (laughs) No. Why does it say this? It's because for the very first time, they experienced guilt. They felt what their autonomy, their self-lawing, had done to them. They felt a distance between them and God that wasn't there before. So why respond to this feeling by looking for clothing? Now, just to be clear, they weren't trying to cover their arms. A person is not called naked when any part of their body is showing. You know, my hand's showing. I'm not naked. They are called naked when the parts of their body that reveal their gender are showing. That's when someone's naked. So what were they doing? They were scrambling to cover their gender. This is amazing. So their autonomy, their declaration of self-law, did not affect them as generic people. It affected them as gendered people. It affected them as a man and as a woman. They felt it in their genders. That's how deep our gender goes. It's not floating on the top, it's at the core. This was the beginning of gender dysphoria. Now, it shows up in many different ways. For some, it shows up in the way we've been talking about today a genuine emotional confusion about their gender. For many, it shows up just in a warped view of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. And these warped views and understandings lead to creating all kinds of dysfunctions in marriages and families. I I have, over the decades, I have worked to help not only my own marriage, but all kinds of marriages. And in my experience, 
vast majority of the problems are men are not understanding and acting like men and women are not understanding and acting like women. It just causes so much problem, this gender dysphoria. And it leads to men and women viewing each other as objects for their own purposes, maybe sexual objects for their own pleasure, rather than people created in the image of God and valued for much more than how they look. So for some, it's just confusion about being a real man or being a real woman. For some, this gender dysphoria leads to feelings of attraction to the same sex that feels just too persistent and too powerful for them to resist. Now, most think that there's nothing that can be done about these expressions of dysphoria because in the modern mind, the thinking is the causes of this are genetic. It's all because of some research that was done in the 1990s. The search was on in the 1990s for the gay gene. And it wasn't usually called that. The, the, the term that was referred to back in the 90s was born this way. The idea is that if sexual orientation, that was the research at the time that was being done, is genetic, then it's just like eye color or skin color. It's a matter of genetics, not morality. And that, you know, if it is genetics, then it isn't moral. I mean, I have blue eyes, not because I selected these, but because I was born this way. That's my genetics. So it can't be wrong. I didn't choose my genetics. What most people don't realize is the gay gene was never found. But it didn't need to be found because in the minds of almost everyone on the culture, this idea of born this way is locked in, even though the science never came up with the gay gene. And what's interesting now is the search for that genetic, those genetic markers, has been called off. Why? It seemed like you'd want to find this. It's because the transgender message is in opposition to the genetics message. Transgender says, even though I was born that way, I now feel a different way. That's the opposite of born this way. You know, it would not be logical for me to say, I was born blue-eyed, but now I feel brown-eyed. That's not logical. And this is why the search for the gay gene has been called off. There's no funding going for that. Because finding a gay gene would totally destroy the transgender cause. So where we are now in our culture is what started out as born this way is now feel this way. That's, that's the primary authority. I mean, again, that's autonomy, self-law. The issue is our deepest problem is a break in our relationship with God. We are all born that way. That's true of all of us. This is the foundation of all of our problems, whether they're genetic or otherwise. And like with Adam and Eve, that break is felt most deeply in our genders and in our sexuality. So what can be done? There really are two options. Move further towards autonomy and try to find a solution to the emotions there or move towards the God who made you in his image as male or female. Now, early reports from the front lines of sexual autonomy are not encouraging. And there's debate about what the causes are, but there's just really sad reports for those that are 
heading out into the desert of autonomy. In fact, you may not know this, but in the UK now, they no longer allow for gender reassignment treatment for adolescents. They do in this country, but not in the UK. Why? The reason is that so many who had undergone the treatment, when they became adults, wished they hadn't undergone the treatment. And so the UK, it's now illegal for adolescents. Now, again, the feelings of dysphoria are real and intense. These are real people in need of real help. But the most loving thing is not to abandon them to the isolated desert of personal autonomy. The only hope that any of us have with the particular kind of dysphoria we feel is to return back to the God who created us, male and female. He loves us and invites us back with open arms. Now, last week, if you were here, I, I encouraged you to download an app. It's called uh, the Overcome app. It's basically dealing with pornography, overcome porn. And I want to mention it again, even though we haven't talked about pornography today. But the reason I encourage you to do this, it's a 40-day devotional focused on, I think, some of the best thinking and writings and verses about the area of sexuality. So, again, I've heard from some of you, you feel a little uncomfortable downloading this because you're not struggling with porn. So you have, again, a note from your pastor that says you can use this, okay? The reason I'm encouraging you to do this is, first of all, a lot of people are struggling with porn. Secondly, the numbers of struggle with porn is intense. In particular, sexual struggles, the younger you get, the numbers are, are scary. So even if you're not struggling with it, it would be great if you would know how to help someone who is. And you may learn some about your own area. So again, I bring that to your attention. Feel free to download that, uh, go through that uh, devotional. I think it's, it's really helpful. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words that are not just rules from you, but are words of life that describe the territory in which we, we flourish and find real life. And we know that our culture has all kinds of different ideas that are different from your words. But we pray that you would help us to, to love everyone, to be of help and service, and to be ready to help those who want to hear about you. God, I pray for our culture, particularly the young in our culture right now, as the devastation just appears to be continuing to pile up, whether it shows up in their emotions or in all kinds of other things. God, I just I pray, God, you would help us to help our young find their way forward in this very confusing climate. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.